remember a conversation that I had with uh, some of our neighbors over over the fence kind of conversation shortly after we had uh, moved to Camrose, where I had just begun my ministry as pastor of First Baptist Church. And, uh, and so in a very pleasant way, uh, in the conversation, this uh, question that I think has come up thousands of times in different places, why are so many denominations? You know, why couldn't we be just one church? I suspect that uh, today there are a lot of conversations like that with that uh, special event, special remembrance of 500 years. Why couldn't we be just one church? And so I said, you know what, I agree. Why, why couldn't we just all be Baptists? <laughs> there is there. <laughs> yeah. But you know, we, we, we hear so much about that. And by the way, uh, as, as Baptists, you know, we're not uh, always that unified either. Uh, did you know that uh, there are actually five uh, well-established Baptist denominations in Canada. You know, there's the American Baptist, there's the Canadian Baptist, there's the Fellowship Baptist, there's the North American Baptist, and there's the us. Who are we? Uh, General BGC. And then there are Baptists by definition have all that uh, autonomy, so you also have a lot of uh, Autonomous, you know, Baptist churches, they're Baptist, but they're not uh, formally associated with anyone else. Someone has, uh, has quipped, uh, you know, that uh, where you have uh, two Baptists, you have three opinions. <laughs> You've probably heard that. And because of that, that local autonomy, see, you disagree with uh, fellow Baptists about something, and so you can always, you can always go and start another church. Um, but we, we hear so much about the scandal, the difficulty, awkwardness of the many, many groups. Christians, you know, you're Catholic, you're Orthodox, you're Protestants, and then so many different kinds within each, and especially within Protestants. But I'd like to suggest today that uh, what is far more practical and uh, helpful, and I think necessary, is oneness, unity, within the local foundation. Unity within all the respective local churches. And certainly that's how I want to relate the text this morning to us. Unity within our congregation. After all, that is where the day-by-day, week-by-week frontline action is, on the local level. That's where unity or disunity is especially visible in the neighborhood, because it's close to home. And it is in the local church especially that we have considerable control and influence and therefore responsibility. And so the call for us, even as expressed here by Paul in verse 3 of Ephesians 4, I'm taking in especially for us as a local congregation. 
And all the good things that Paul describes and talks about in these 16 verses as he describes life in the church. Uh, you know, talking about leadership, talking about the ministry of the congregation, he's talking about the outcome. Um, possible only when there's unity. And uh, that outcome, verse 16, again, can only happen where there's, where there's unity. It says, from him, the whole body, joined, joined, held together by every supporting ligament that's being bound together, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. But unpacking, especially verse 3, and then from 3 to 6, I want to talk about that under four headings. I want to talk about the effort towards unity, the basis of unity, the significance, and then finally the practice. How do we put that into practice? But beginning with the effort, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Every effort. And that term means to exert zealous effort, to take pains. It suggests that there's difficulty and there's a resolute determination to overcome the difficulty. And so that term in itself uh, suggests that it requires diligence to have unity. It's something that has to be worked at. And then he says, through the bond of peace. Peace was obtained when the hostilities that separated the Jews and the Gentiles were broken down and both races were united in the one new man in Christ. And so here the peace is the bond by which <coughs> that unity is kept. Now, I would suggest that it's significant that Paul here is not saying uh, you know, make every effort to restore the unity. He doesn't say that. But he says make every effort to keep the unity. I agree with Johnny Erickson Tata when she writes that believers are never told to become one. We already are one in Christ. And so we're expected to act like it. And uh, Paul has uh, demonstrated earlier in this in this book in, in, in chapter two uh, that unity in Christ between Jews and Gentiles that they have become one. But practically, we are to be intentional. We are to be eager. We are to spare no effort about unity. And so, but the fact that he says keep the unity that would indicate that it's not just when you're in trouble. But ahead of time, you keep from getting into trouble with disunity. Uh, and that would indicate that the danger of divisiveness is always potentially near. And I think as we look around and as we uh, you know, consider our own history, not just here, but wherever you've been, you can see that. But the question then would be, well, why does it require such effort? He 
zealous. He uh, used every effort in order to maintain unity. Why is it so difficult? <coughs> it's pretty obvious why. Because of the business we're in. We in the people business. One leader expressed it like this. He says, when I, when I get to heaven, I've got to ask God why he used imperfect people to do his perfect will. I suspect his answer will be, he couldn't find any other people. And you know, that in itself is, is a further reason why we need each other, because you and me as individuals, we can sort of be oddballs and weird and far from very flawed, okay? And that can be so obvious, but somehow in our togetherness, see, we're more complete. And in our togetherness, we as a body can reflect the person of Christ. But as broken, imperfect, flawed people, the potential for our squabbles leading to division is always there. And so for this reason, be on guard, be eager, make every effort. But as I move on to the second point, the concept and the reality of unity cannot stand by itself and, and still be meaningful. But unity has to relate to something, it has to be referenced to something, unity for something or about something, related to something like pride of country that can bring people together. Or for a team, a strong desire to win. I'm not sure why the Oilers aren't able to seem to win games even at home. But for a, you know, that's a basis of unity. We as a team, we're going to do our best to win. Uh, and so it's not just a sense of togetherness or a camaraderie. As wonderful as that might be, might be, but in the faith community, it's going to be around certain issues of faith. We are unified around, because of, related to, the purpose that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that brings me to that second point here, the basis of the unity. Verse 4 and 5. And six, Apostle Paul talks about the oneness here. I think it's significant for many places he talks about one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. There's a basis for all of that unity. Uh, just going over some of these uh, quickly. One body and one spirit. We may kind of pass over this and say, well, of course, you know, take it for granted. But think of what that would have meant in the early days of the church, where there was all that hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he is simply reveling in this reality and how that in Christ, that wall of separation between the Jews and Gentiles has been broken down, and they have become one. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, one body, one spirit, and then uh, one spirit, for the spirit who fell on the Jewish church in Jerusalem 
Acts chapter 10, it's the same spirit that fell on, or in chapter 2, the same spirit that fell on the Gentile believers in Cornelius' house. One spirit, it says one hope. Hope means a futuristic uh, view, and it's hope of our inheritance in heaven, or in a new heaven, a new earth. But it's not only that, it's, it's a one hope when it comes to make everything right. And that's become more significant in my mind lately as we have seen there's so much, so much that is wrong out there, and so much evil, and so much cruelty. And we are anticipating the time when it comes back to set things right. One Lord, the Lord Shepherd Christ is at the very center of the gospel. And in the early church, they refused to give this title to others who claimed it, notably the Roman Emperor, when the title was claimed in a sense that implied even divinity. Case in point, Emperor Domitian was emperor in 80, 80 to 96, 81 to 96. In the latter part of his reign, he began to demand that his subjects address him as Lord and God and to worship his image. And for refusing to do so, many Christians were put to death. And others like John in Revelation were exiled. But that Jesus is Lord was at the very core of the gospel proclamation. Uh, day of Pentecost, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then Acts chapter 17, we have the account in Thessalonica, where some of the Jews were jealous of Paul and his companions, and they testified against them. The city officials say, they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Yes, indeed, for us today also, the center of our gospel is that Jesus is king. He is the true Lord. Not any human king or president or prime minister or chief CEO, but it's Jesus Christ. And at the very heart of the gospel, and you know, if you, if, if, if you bother to even wonder about uh, the people in other churches, who, who, who is truly saved and who isn't, it's really about this. Those who are committed under the allegiance personally of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the gospel. And the call is to come under his supreme authority. One faith, one belief in Jesus as Lord, and thus the acceptance and acknowledgement of him as Lord. One baptism, the expression of that one faith, that one God and Father of us all. And that is the ultimate reference point of unity. God who is one. And through our relationship with Christ, part of the common faith in knowing him as Father. The basis. Unity has to have a reference point. You know, we're living at a time when, for a lot of people, faith is uh, very subjective. And you'll hear comments like, you know, what is, what is true for me is not necessarily true for you. And uh, what's true for you isn't true for me. But Christian faith, saving faith isn't like that. Someone responded to that kind of observation by saying, would you say that's the same in World War II? 
true for you, but not true for any other person. No, it's a matter of history. And it's true, it's true for all people. Our faith is based on something that happened in history. The basis of unity. Not unity at any price, or unity without truth. But unity around these basic truths, basic, generic, Christian, non-negotiables, as for example expressed in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Basis of unity. But given all this, we need to ask why? Why is it so important? Make every effort. Why? I want to refer to two very obvious points. Why it's so important. The significance of unity. <clears throat> First is our mission. We have a mission. There's something to do and accomplish. There's the mission for every church that's given in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. That ties in them. But every every church is unique and needs to define their own unique mission or sense of purpose. Who are we? What is our particular identity and appropriate mission that comes out of our identity given our local context? And whatever we set out to become and whatever we set out to do, we can only do it when we work together as a team, when there's a strong dynamic of togetherness. So there's unity. I think that's pretty obvious. There's a collection of fables credited to one Aesop, a slave and a storyteller. Uh, he's believed to have uh, lived in ancient Greece between uh, 600 and 500 before Christ. And one of those fables is about a lion prowled around in a field where there were four oxen that were feeding. That's where they lived. And that lion often tried to attack them. But whenever he came near, whenever he was a threat, these oxen, they just turned their tails to one another. And so, from whichever direction he approached them, he was met by a set of arms. At last, however, the oxen started to quarrel among themselves. And each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. The lion saw his chance, attacked them one by one. And soon made the end of all. Could it be that our enemy's favorite tactic is to divide? As we say, divide and conquer. And that would be enough. That would be enough to win battle after battle. <laughs> First, the ox over here, and then the ox over there, and then the third and the fourth one. One battle at a time. If you can split people, keep them apart. And so I think it's pretty obvious that unity amongst us is essential for whatever our mission might be. And pray for us as we are wrestling now with what is what is the option? What is the best option for our future? And as leaders, we're working on that. Pray for us that we will discern wisdom. God's best. But then we have to come together on it. 
one voice, one approach, one purpose together, unity, for the sake of nation. But there's another reason. And I would dare to suggest that the second re reason is even more important than the unity for the sake of mission. More important because it's more basic. It's because of the nature of the gospel. The gospel, what is the gospel? Well, we know it's the gospel of love, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of grace. And with uh, Martin Luther fresh on our mind, the gospel of faith, the gospel of live by faith. It's, it's all of this. But there's something that is even more basic. It is the gospel of reconciliation. Bringing parties together. You see, sin separated. Sin drives, and still does, it drives a wedge between parties, between people and God, and people and people. We would cause the divisions within our own selves. And when sin entered into the world, it also drove a wedge between people and nature. But the gospel is about Christ dying for our sins in order to bridge the separation. One pastor observed that Satan's strategy is to separate, and God's strategy is to reconcile. Bring about reconciliation between God and people people, and then ultimately to reconcile all things that were separated because of sin, for he even brings together the separation in nature. Colossians 1, 19 and 24, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And so unity then is more than just good strategy for mission. Unity is also about demonstrating the very gospel itself, which is about reconciling. And it becomes a reflection here and now of what God will do fully in the future. The effort, make every effort, the basis one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one spirit, one hope. The significance. It's essential for the mission that we're given. It's essential because it demonstrates reconciliation, which is the gospel. What can we do to promote the actual experience of unity within us. How can we help? How can each of us do, do his or her part? The practice of unity. I want to say, A, let the Spirit of Christ rule. Last Sunday we focused especially on the verse 2, where the Christ-like qualities are called for, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And it's significant that immediately after that, the Apostle Paul says, make every effort for unity. And actually, in the original language, in the Greek language, there's no stop there, but they go together. Uh, for example, the uh, ESV 
actually a better translation here. Uh, where it goes on, it just bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain. There's no stop. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Goes together. These these qualities, these Christ-like qualities of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Part of the practice of unity. And so these qualities in my life and in your life, it's not only about us, so that we are in a better spiritual state of mind, but it's about relating to one another, which in itself helps to create unity and maintain unity. If you have little humi humility between us, there will be little unity, little gentleness, little patience, little bearing with one another in love, there will be little unity. And maybe, maybe there's nothing more helpful than that you and I as individuals can do towards unity, but have these qualities and bring them with us into the congregation. Next. There's a second one. And that would be welcome diversity. Now that might almost seem counterintuitive. I mean, we're talking about unity, and I'm saying welcome diversity. But there's a great deal of difference between unity and uniformity. Unity means having a unified spirit, working together. Uniformity is sameness, as in cookie cutter sameness. You know, that's fine for cookies. It's also good for chocolate bars. <laughs> and you remember? I remember how my mom's favorite was uh, eat more. I really like eat more too. My wife's favorite is O. Henry. And uh, but you know what if she bought what if she bought a, an O. Henry chocolate bar and she opened it up and inside was something else? Eat more, you know. Sameness, complete sameness is is good for candy bars, right? Not for people. Not for people in the church. In a healthy church, there'll be room for a great deal of diversity. Unity amongst us. Among us means living in harmony. Harmony. Think about it. What is harmony? You know, I, I might go over to the piano and I might pound out a C. Very boring. And then I add a, an E, and that sounds a little better. And then I, I think the next one is G, and oh my goodness, now we got a chord. And I go for uh, B flat, and we have a seventh chord. Harmony, beautiful. Choir, harmony. And the different ones are singing different parts. Diversity and together it makes for harmony. As we read earlier, Ephesians emphasizing emphasizes the bringing together of two very diverse groups, normally hostile towards one another, the Jew and the Gentiles, reconciled as one in Christ. There is a sense in which the greater the diversity of the people in a church, the greater is the testimony of reconciliation. You know, such a difference should be such a difference between a church and a boys' club. You know, a boys' club or a men's club, we're together on the basis of camaraderie. But the miracle in the church is that there's a togetherness in the context of great diversity. Some of you may uh, at some point have encountered Boydell, 
was a pastor in one or two different churches a long time ago here in, in uh, Edmonton. Passed away just a few months ago at the age of 91. But he was very prominent in our denomination, that is the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada. And uh, I loved the sermon that he gave one year at assembly. And the sermon was later printed in the Canadian Baptist. And he talks about all the fragmentation in our society and in several churches. And he talks about the rich variety of peoples on the day of Pentecost. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, they came from many different places and here they were together speaking in tongues in that occasion. He refers to Galatians 3, verse 28, where you have, that's that text where the Apostle Paul says that there's no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And then he's lamenting the fact that in many, many different churches, it's almost like they've polarized around ages, right? You have some churches that there's hardly anybody there over 40, and then you have others again where there's nobody under 60 in the church. And he, but he talks about how that every different generation has something unique to contribute. That's true. Those of us who have been around a while, we have a certain perspective that is helpful. And these young adults with their energy and their creativeness and their innovation, they have something special to offer. Our teens and their vulnerability have something to offer. How it helps us to be more on edge and more concerned about certain things. And children and their dependence. Every generation has something special to contribute. Bell wrote as follows, the ideal church would be multi-generational. Incorporate all the ethnic and racial groups in the general community and to be inclusive with regard to gender and respect all cultural convictions of the people. Your German people, we respect your culture. We know that it means a lot to you. Scandinavian, we know it means a lot to you. If you're from Kenya, we know it means a lot to you. If you're from the Philippines, we know this means a lot to you. Respecting cultural convictions of the people. And then he says, maybe there is no such church. But what a difference. That spirit that welcomes diversity makes for people who are different. People who are marginalized for whatever reason. Refugees or immigrants of any kind. People with a past that they are ashamed of. Diversity. To a large extent, the promotion of these two qualities I've mentioned you know, Christ-likeness, that spirit of Christ-likeness, diversity, is going to depend on the third practical one. And that will be good team leadership. Pastors, board members, ministry team leaders. And for me, the key here is team. I've expressed on more than one occasion, I don't... I think one of, one of the main reasons why I've been able to survive as a pastor all these years, one of the main reasons is I have never believed that as pastor I was the leader of the church. I've always thought of myself as one elder among the others. 
and uh, and that is a group in And frankly, I think that's one of the main reasons why I've been able to survive. I didn't take the responsibility that seriously, but I was a team player. There's no one, pastor, young or veteran, deacon, elder, charter member, no one is suited to make significant church decisions unilaterally. But team leadership, good team leadership. In the context of all our imperfections, flawed people, many with strong personalities with differing opinions, it takes good leaders to keep things coordinated, to keep the members of the congregation pulling in the same direction. And so you need leaders who have the ability to do what needs to be done. Leaders who are characterized by, as we said, humility, gentleness, patience, willing to bear with the weaknesses of others. Leaders with a servant heart, willing to listen, who are able to admit when they were wrong, leaders who are caring, and yet who will blow the whistle when that unity is being threatened. Of course, persons of faith and integrity, not yes men around the pastor, but supportive of the pastor. If there's going to be unity in the congregation, <clears throat> there must be unity among the leaders. And when you have good leaders, you will likely have a congregation that will trust them and cooperate with them. And that's biblical. Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Good team leadership that will lead in welcoming diversity and highlighting Christ likeness. Now, at this point, you're probably saying, Well, I don't qualify. I can't be a leader. Who can be a leader? Well, I can't either. And as I told you, I could never have been a pastor this long unless I believe we have to do it together, even the leading. And so I encourage you, this is not meant to discourage you, but it's it's meant to talk about the significance of good leadership. If you have a heart for the Lord and you have a heart for the church, that's the beginning. And you can grow into being capable. And perhaps the most important part of being a good leader is to, to know that you're not quite qualified, right? It's often that way in the Christian world. Some years ago, Pastor Don Baker gave a series of lectures at the Grand Pastors Conference. And he, uh, he came from Portland, Oregon. He's pastor of a uh, uh, memorial church down there, a Henson Memorial. And, uh, and he pointed out that in his denomination, they had had some you know, doctrinal controversies from time to time. He said they seem to come up about once every 10 years. And he was kind of pointing out that those were not really the, the big problems that caused problems. And, uh, and then he told a story about a lady who was, was new to the church. She came to a social fellowship and bought a cake. She dropped off the cake and then walked And she looked back over her shoulder and she saw one of the host ladies 
heard her say, we don't use imitation equipment in here. That Dr. Baker, those, those are the things that this church is. Humility? I don't think so. Gentleness? Are you kidding? Patience? Bearing with one another in love? None of the other. See, I'm not concerned about those kinds of extreme happening. And I suspect that when Baker shared that too, he knew that those big, very extreme events isn't really a problem. They're tangible enough that we can deal with them. But I'm concerned about subtle things that can happen. Not quite tangible, but subtle things. I'm concerned that in hundreds of churches it's probably happening in subtle ways, territorial possessiveness, power struggles, subtle manipulations, people making minor issues into divisive issues. Flesh <clears throat> humility, patience, meekness, bearing in love be the very culture, the very atmosphere the DNA of the church. Out of that, welcoming diversity and all of this modeled. Yes, and directed. Enforced if necessary by good human leadership. And then against the backdrop of the world of alienation and hostility, we will be a demonstration of the gospel of reconciliation gospel that should not only be heard but should be seen gospel of reconciliation jesus prayed for his people the church that was to be in john chapter 17 he says i am them and you me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will not lose sight of that which is so essential, that which is so important to you, that you went to the cross to bring about reconciliation together. We pray that somehow this word might be prominent in our minds, that it might be part of the context in which we make decisions day by day, month by month, as a church, and that in our very unity you would bless and direct us so that we can accomplish the mission you have for us, and that all of this be a demonstration of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. We pray too that we'll be alert to the different things we need to highlight.